0: When I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris.
1: Look, look, the dust is growing.
0: My branches last large, you
2: Stately
3: clumped buck bargain.
1: All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. welcome to this very special bonus Bloomcast. Our guest today has been evoked so many times over the past nine episodes that we've come to think of him as the unofficial fourth Bloomcaster, our very own George Martin, if you will, the discreet guiding hand of genius that keeps our freewheeling Joycean analysis on track. Whether he was aware of this role or not is quite another question. (laughs) He is, of course, Declan Kybird, author of the superb introduction to the Penguin Classics edition of Ulysses, this podcast's official partner text, as well as Ulysses and Us, The Art of Everyday Living, a profoundly erudite yet deeply personal guide to Joyce's masterpiece. I can't think of a better description of Ulysses and Us than the one Joseph O'Connor gave when he called it the most exciting book I know on the oh. most exciting novel ever written. Declan Kuybert, welcome to Bloomcast.
2: Well, it's very nice to be with you and to see all those beautiful books behind you. From the <laughs> <shop>. Yes, <laughs> Of course, Joseph was a student of mine, as he reminded me last week, 41 years ago, Don't and sh- he has been well-bribed and well <laughs> Well-seasoned. <laughs> I, I, I remember um, him, Him um first-year student. He wrote the most brilliant essay on Othello that I think I've ever read anywhere. Mm-hmm. Then he disappeared for a few weeks. Then I got a sheet of paper under the door saying, Dear Professor Kybert, I am sorry to have missed four tutorials in a row. The reasons, I tell you, are both compelling and indescribable. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, decided, I had a decision whether to believe him or not. I believed him, and we have been great friends ever since. I, okay, this, have, this, I have launched is... a couple of his books, so he he returned the favor when he said that.
4: Well done.
1: <laughs> I think I've also got the feeling there's this is put this conversation on a good track. If that is the kind of indiscretion we get before we even ask a question, I can't wait. To...
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it, and so strikes, we... it strikes me as very much in the spirit of Joyce himself, who, as you point out, missed most of his lectures and failed many of his exams at university. Yes,
2: I'm, I'm, I'm a veteran of three and a half decades of teaching at University College Dublin. And of course, UCD is now very happy to promote Joyce as one of his foremost brands. But they don't tell the world that they tried repeatedly to fail him in some of his papers, and that he himself helped them in this campaign by not turning up to too many classes. So uh, I do describe him in Ulysses and Us as an autodidact, which may be the polite way of saying what Virginia Woolf meant when she said he was... uh, you know, a self-taught Dublin working man, mm. or a queasy undergraduate scratching his pimples, but definitely someone up to no good. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so we've been,
1: yeah, Alice, yeah, over to you, Professor
0: Cawood. We want to, we want to. Um, our first question kind of reaches back. We imagine to to your early years, as possibly an undergraduate, or even as a teenager. Our first question is: um, What was your initial meeting with Ulysses? Um, how, what is your kind of path to Ulysses and how has your relationship to the text changed over the years as you've read it? We imagined many times and taught it first in Ireland, now in America. Um,
2: yeah. Um, well, I've always felt with great books, you don't so much read them as they read you mm. and at different times in your life, you'll find different things in them. Mm. Um, I first got curious because my father had about five deeply questionable banned books although Ulysses wasn't banned in Ireland in his wardrobe so of course I read these as a teenage boy with great curiosity mm-hmm. and uh, you know tried to discover why he was hiding Ulysses from the rest of the world a book which evoked the world he knew um I read it then in Trinity in a more formal way as a student. But it so happened that the week I read it was the week in which uh, British soldiers killed um, 13 civilians in Derry on Bloody Sunday. Mm-hmm. and I was very struck by the pacifist elements in the book, that Bloom thinks it's wrong to arm soldiers in front of a crowd, um, that Joyce himself chooses Odysseus as a model rather than any of the other epic heroes because Odysseus didn't want to go to war. He mm-hmm. was a draft dodger, and draft dodgers at the time were quite common in the Trinity College I attended. So that Pacific element really struck me in my mm-hmm. first reading. Then <laughs> when I went to America, I was teaching um, young Californians, mm-hmm. and yep. they had a very different take. Like They, <laughs> was, they would say things like... Um, Professor Clyburn, uh, this man Bloom is doing an awful lot of walking, and I said, "Yes, everybody in Dublin walks, and even more people walked in those days." But we think he's trying to walk something off, oh, something wrong, you know, because in California, everyone either jogs or goes in their automobile. <laughs> walking is almost a perverse activity <laughs> in parts of California, but um, perverse or futile. <laughs> yeah, like tried to explain that uh, 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 he was in a way. Trying to walk the streets in order not to go home because he knew that at home his wife was betraying him in the arms of another man. Mm-hmm. So I said to this student, Actually, you're onto something very deep and you mm-hmm. should uh, explore your insight, which is a good one. And she actually mm-hmm. drew a map of Bloom's wanderings through Dublin, which almost formed the shape of a question mark. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh. But yeah, it has changed over the years. I mean, At at, at certain times, um, you would get, for instance, feminists uh, saying this was one of the great breakthrough books, especially the Molly Bloom soliloquy, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: for expressing unqualified female desire as women experience it and not as men imagine it.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, Now we have more recent feminists saying, no, no, a mere male appropriating the voice of a woman, this is highly to be questioned. Mm. And I've even um had one or two students who are, I suppose, part of the Me Too generation, but also very serious Catholics practicing mm. who 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 said to me that they thought the Gertie McDowell chapter
3: mm.
2: and the Molly Bloom chapter were were ones they were not willing to report on in class. Unsafe mm-hmm. classroom, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So things change a lot over time right. as
1: well. Right. Mm. Just before we move on to the next question, I just want to know what other banned books your father had in his closet, because... (laughs) I guess it's D.H. Lawrence.
2: (laughs) He did, actually, yeah. He had um, D.H. Lawrence, Lady Chatterley. He also had the Kinsey Report. Ah. And uh, he tended also to have uh, tabloid newspapers from Britain, Ah. yes. Mm. But he was an extremely... Learned and astute man. I don't want to portray him as some kind of uh, weirdo who was a <laughs> porn, you know, from <laughs> my mother. He, he, I, I remember the first time Ulysses was broadcast by RTE radio nonstop, mm. an epic achievement of public broadcasting with really both actors. Yeah. Um, he sat listening to Bloom's early soliloquies with me, the early monologues, and he looked at me and he said, is this what you do in UCD every day? <laughs> he almost has an outraged taxpayer. And I think actually, it is. This, this is my work. And he listened a bit more. And then he said, do you not think it might be better to have not quite so rich an inner life? <laughs> there was a sense in which, uh, you know, the characters in the book were living too much inside their own heads and not connecting enough with the environment.
4: Mm, mm, mm. Um, one, one, speaking of, of words that have changed, uh, changed with the times, um, mm-hmm. one word that one encounters all through your book is the word uh, bourgeois. And you talk about the, the civic bourgeois, the bourgeoisie that existed in, in Dublin, the world of, of the music hall and, and, and the pub and the cafe and the, and the library. Um, it's a word that almost has only heard a negative connotations today. Um, but to you it, it it has a different ring. And I would I was curious if you could tell us a little bit about what you mean by uh the notion that Ulysses is an epic of, of
2: the bourgeoisie. That's that's a very astute of you. Um, remember that Ireland at the end of the nineteenth century was coming out of a long, traumatic concussion. Uh so that something like becoming bourgeois was exciting. Um, for your average intellectual in the West Bank in Paris, there had been war with the bourgeoisie for at least a 100 years since the <laughs> revolution. But the Irish were aspiring to this um, condition. And therefore, I think uh, someone like Bloom um, is able to make common cause with a bohemian like Stephen Dedalus at the end of the book and not feel that there's any conflict. In fact, he, he suggests that... Um, the artist is a kind of worker, like uh, the more ordinary ad canvasser, and 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 they both are entitled to, the, you know, the results of their 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 investment in the work. And um, I think it's deeper than this. However, it's also that Joyce, who always could see the future, realized that the bourgeoisie was already past its golden stage; mm-hmm. already in decline which is one reason I think he dresses Bloom in a mourning suit and has him attend a funeral of a man he hardly knew, Mm. Uh, that Joyce realized that all epics don't come from the central confident element Mm. of a successful culture, but actually are produced on the edge of a culture that's about to go into Mm. emission or to be negated. And Mm. I think Joyce sensed that the... uh, the civic bourgeoisie, the kind of people who built the Carnegie libraries and would believe in public service broadcasting, were already being replaced by a merely consumerist middle class Mm -hmm. and that this was, in its own way, a tragedy of the intellectual life. But that Bloom, like my father, if you like, was part of a a civic bourgeoisie and this was something to be celebrated. Mm -hmm. And the meeting between Stephen and Bloom, is a very sweet moment where Bohemian and Bourgeois make sweet music together. Mm-hmm. You, th- you think of all the other works of high modernism, it's almost the opposite. The Bohemian and the Bourgeois are loggerheads of some kind in, in Thomas Mann or wherever.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I wonder, actually, this has just occurred to me for the first time, um, but just on the subject of Bloom particularly, obviously, rather than Joyce, is that I wonder how much his position as a f- sort of a first-generation immigrant impacted his kind of connection with the idea of making money and establishing yourself in a Mm -hmm. society as well because i think it's something i see among for example friends in france whose parents emigrated from north africa or or sub-saharan africa who sort of even though they may have uh artistic uh temperaments their families kind of funneled them into let's say more traditional maybe sort of bourgeois career paths because mm -hmm. i suppose i don't know perhaps the sort of the to be a bohemian is a sort of a luxury of the, hmm. Hmm. the established in some way.
2: I think that's a very helpful comment. Mm-hmm. And to it I would add that most of the Irish were themselves just migrating into the bourgeois capital mm-hmm. lifestyle at around the same time. Mm-hmm. So they would be going through the very process you ascribe to bloom mm-hmm. and 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 I think for them it was kind of new and exciting. Mm. And, and, and 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 not something to be sneered at in any way mm. uh, Quite the reverse
4: can, can i can i can i go a step deeper in in this idea of of the epic coming after um the uh a moment of 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 um a peak or or or, or high achievement in culture because you also point out in in wandering rocks one of the great uh, chapters on the on the street and giving this the street level view of of Dublin from so many perspectives that this is a society in 1904 under enormous pressure, hmm. uh, economic pressure that's coming from also the the uh, imperial uh, imperial moment and in a sense, you know, c- couldn't we also see 1904 Dublin if if it's in a sense the last cry of something in the civic bourgeoisie, it's also on the doorstep of something which is an independent Ireland. So how, how do those two things fit fit together?
2: Yeah, well, I think that's very true, that the Irish revival is both recognizing the lastness of certain things that go way back to ancient epic, Cú the Gaelic language, etc., but also absolute newness. Mm -hmm. Um, It's what Terry Eagleton once called the archaic avant-garde, you Mm -hmm. know, that you get a Mm -hmm. book like Ulysses, which is utterly experimental in form. Mm -hmm. You gift wrap it in the story of Homer's Odyssey, which is one of the oldest in Europe. And uh, you make the very new reassuringly look more like the rather old. Sort and of
4: like, like, uh, like Giacometti or in sculpture.
2: Yes. And I think that's what the Irish did. You're right. I mean, Ulysses appears literally in 1922, the same year as the new Irish state, Mm-hmm. And, and there is a sense in which the rebels of 1916 were also, also archaic avant-gardists. They were a bit like mm-hmm. Joyce. They were offering answers to questions that hadn't yet been fully asked, which is the most mm-hmm. radical, futuristic thing you can do. Wow. Right. No one had even thought about Ireland being a republic at that stage. They had simply thought about home rule. But I think there is um, a sense in which, uh, you know, if you look at Easter 1916. There were women involved fighting for the Irish side as soldiers. Yeah. There were none in the imperial army. And um, the proclamation of the republic wants a welfare state cherishing mm-hmm. all its children equally. It's almost anticipating Sweden, like, by four mm-hmm. decades. It's a very futuristic kind of politics behind what looks also very nostalgic for an old Gaelic world. And it manages to be both at the same time. Mm. And I think there's always been this contradiction in Irish culture that uh, you know uh, what what seems very radical in some ways is also often very traditional. I'll give you a recent mm. example. We voted very strongly for gay marriage to mm. recognize yeah. gay and lesbian marriage. No, some people when I was in Italy when that vote went through, said to me, "Oh, we'd never be able to do that. That just wouldn't happen here." And I said, but it happened in Ireland because Irish people actually believe in the family as an institution mm-hmm. and extending the rights of family to gay and lesbian people. So you have this sort of archaic avant-garde thing
0: mm-hmm.
2: wow, in all the elements really of the future. But I think Joyce is probably exhibit A.
0: So so staying with this idea, um, Professor, of of the avant-garde the future anticipation, so much of what we've talked about in our conversations about Ulysses is how Not only does Joyce himself anticipate so many of the movements of literature in the 20th century, but also the subjects that we are currently thinking about today as citizens. So we talked about vegetarianism, universal basic income, supply chains, the inner lives of animals, and you yourself just said that Joyce could always see the future. I'm curious, are there things that you think he wasn't able to see or that he got wrong? Well... (sighs)
2: He was usually right. Um, for instance, we've had a strenuous debate uh, about the maternity hospital being built here at the moment. And, you know, in the book, there's a debate about if the life of the child and the mother is equally endangered, who, which would we say this debate has been on Irish radio day in, day out. And in fact, mm-hmm. Rona Mahoney, who wrote the chapter in our current book, is one of the great commentators on it. I think perhaps Joyce never anticipated the Celtic Tiger, uh, the the period of extreme affluence in the 90s when Ireland became uh, very, very consumerist and actually one of the most globalised countries in the world. Um, I think if he came back now, he would be pleased at the well-fed faces of his fellow citizens Mm. and pleased to see... How much prosperity there is, in fact, in a country that had always been undeveloped, undeveloped economically, and he would see that at last uh, economics has caught up with culture and politics, because the paradox really is that in his time you have a very advanced uh, culture which is experimental, partly because the English are in power, so we can shoot our mouths off and do what we want and muck around with their literary forms, and. Ditto with the politics. But we were undercapitalized. And I don't think Joyce ever quite foresaw because Mm. he lived in, he was permanently borrowing money. (laughs) I think he would have found it hard to recognize the, uh, well, the vulgar affluence around Mm. him now in parts of Dublin.
1: Picking up on that point of what he maybe didn't um, foresee, one of the things that really um, fascinated me about uh, Ulysses and us is how you talk about how Joyce intended Ulysses to be a book yeah. by and for the working man. And as you write, sort of Virginia Woolf sort of sneeringly said that it was a book of a self-taught Dublin working man. Yeah. Um, given that now, 100 years later, uh, despite many of our best efforts, it's still... Almost exclusively a book, sort of poured over by scholars. Hmm. Does this make it sort of a failure in one sense on its own terms? Is it, it never hmm. sort of fully reached the audience that Joyce hoped it would and wrote it for? Or could we rather see it as the world failing Joyce in as much as these sort of institutions like? The, the working man's library and this kind of radical idea of mm. uh, literacy, of, yeah, mass literacy, and sort of be, being a self-taught working mm. man mm. has, in some way, been been stripped away. Mm. Well, or devalued. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah, it's a very good question. Um, he was his own worst enemy when he gave George Gilbert that Homeric schema, and that uh, sent all the academics down rabbit holes but also made them feel that they would have sole proprietary access to this text. And I think that drove the ordinary reader away, not completely. I mean, there are lots of reading groups here in Dublin composed not of academic people, but um, you know, people from the media, plumbers, doctors. Uh, This has always been a book that did attract the kind of people he wanted to read it. It's Mm. just that it didn't do so in huge numbers. Because I think the academic industry intimidated such a vast number of people with the ways in which it reported on the book. Mm. So um, there are a number of, you know, elements behind this difficulty. There's another thing I'd say, maybe Joyce wanted intellectuals to be a little bit more aware of the ordinary life of working men and women.
3: Mm -hmm. That was
2: part of the project. Not just to write a book for and about ordinary people, but to remind intellectuals
3: mm.
2: that the working man and woman had an inner life of similar dignity and intensity mm. to their own. I mean, I say in the book, if you think about it, um, from the to- I mean in the story of Jesus, fishermen and prostitutes, mm. ordinary people suddenly become extraordinary. It took literature centuries to catch up with this. You know, Mm. Shakespeare's comic figures in A Midsummer Night's Dream are buffoons. Even Mm. uh, the interior monologues in Tolstoy are are experienced by people like Prince Alexei. They're they're aristocrats. Mm. But suddenly in Joyce, you have a person like Bloom, an ad canvasser, or someone like Molly, having these interior monologues. Mm. And and, uh, in a way, a literature which only accorded this kind of dignity to Aristos, has now finally caught up with the story of Jesus. Mm-hmm.
0: But, Professor um, do you make this point in the book that, that, kind of following on from Adam's question here, that um, it's it was the particular curse and perhaps blessing of Ulysses that it appeared just as the curricula of English literature in, in universities really took off. So how much of this is kind of historical, almost incidental, um, this kind of intersection of the arrival of Ulysses and then the arrival of the English literature tradition, as it were.
2: Yeah, it's a su- surprising and in some ways dangerous overlap.
0: Mm. Um,
2: and um, But it's also, as all danger is, filled with opportunity. Some of mm. the great books about Ulysses were written by American academics like my own teacher, Elman, like Harry Levine, or by, you know, a French critic like Hélène Cizou. Um, so I don't completely knock it. Actually, I think what's happened is that in more recent decades, that period has passed. Even mm-hmm. academia has ceased to overclaim investiture in the book. And, you know, if you go to an average English or American university now, you'll find that there's one person there in it who's their choice person, their specialist. And, it, of course, this is totally against the spirit of the book. In fact, mm. that's why we wanted to put out a book with showing all these different kinds of expertise addressed. But, but, but it's kind of sad that, that now even English departments, most people will go through them without reading Ulysses mm. And, and, mm. and almost have this idea, as for reading Ulysses, as for living our servant X will do this for us, and right, yeah. But- and but you, 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 mentioned wanters can have this service, but only them in that mm-hmm. context. Mm-hmm.
4: You, you, you mentioned the experience of of having studied with 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 Richard Elman, who mm-hmm. who for, for our listeners um, uh, is the author of a biography of of James Joyce, which is considered by many not only the best. Um, uh, biography of Joyce, but one of the best literary biographies ever written. And, and you know, you had, you, you studied with him and I'm curious to know um, what do you, what did you retain from, from that experience of studying with him? Uh, what did you learn about the book that you think uh, maybe a book club in Dublin wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. have, have access to?
2: Well, um, I I suppose what I learned was, first of all, he could write in a very probing thoughtful way that was also funny and accessible to the ordinary reader. I mean, my father used to kidnap my L-Man books and read them privately himself, adding them to that collection of furtive... <laughs> <laughs> in, in his stash.
4: I order- <laughs> and- <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> hope there a bottle of whiskey back in that closet too and somewhere. And would say reprovingly to me, why can't you write like l Because my first <laughs> book on Sing was a classic PhD thesis full of right. you know, technical brilliance. Perverted commas. Um, (laughs) So I learned from Elman how to write for a more general reader, I think. And Mm. uh, that was a very useful lesson. I also learned, of course, from his blind spots. You were asking me about what Joyce didn't notice. I noticed (sighs) that Elman felt uh, that Ireland really was a very backward place Mm. because the Ireland he went to in which he did the research was censoring friends of his, like Sean O'Fallon, Elizabeth Bowen, Frank O'Connor. And that remained the image of Ireland in his head, even into the 80s and 90s, when this country had transformed itself utterly. Mm. And I don't think he understood the extent that uh, people like Joyce and Yates and Wilde and Elizabeth Bowen were modern because they were Irish. Mm. Mm. They didn't have to make themselves modern by going to the continent, which was basically Elman's argument that, Mm -hmm. you know, these great writers he wrote the great books about all at some point jumped ship and went to Europe with capital E Mm -hmm. and thereby achieved modernity. Um, Mm And my argument with him was that to be Irish was to be modern anyway. We had been plunged into, in some ways, the nightmare of modernity by Mm -hmm. the... uh, Yeah, the concussions of the 19th century. If you Mm. think about it, Ireland was an experimental laboratory for Mm. neighbouring Ireland through the 19th century. Mm. Um, Some very good things were done, like we had primary education for all before they had it in England. We had Mm. the disestablishment of church and state, which still hasn't happened in England. Mm. But in some ways, it was quite an interestingly advanced laboratory, Mm. as well as also an undercapitalized one. So mm. this is the paradox I'm saying about the archaic and the futuristic.
3: Mm.
2: I, I think that um, Elman was overly anxious at times to notice the archaic, the backwardness mm. of Irish Catholicism, as he would see it. Mm. But he didn't understand how we were also futurists because of the, 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 the and, guess- and he should have seen, and he should have seen this because, for instance, just a very small point. Something as banal as drinking a cup of tea becomes a revolutionary act mm-hmm. if you've lived through the 19th century in Ireland, mm-hmm. because it's been all wars, jewels, fights, illnesses. To be able to just sit back and drink a cup of tea, and Bloom does it a few times, mm. that yeah. is nirvana, but it's all mm.
1: revolution. Mm, mm. staying with that that idea of sort of being futurist kind of forward-looking and just picking up on a phrase you used about your phd and you said you know then you decided to write something for the general reader one of the phrases from your book that really stuck with me was that you said that joyce um he he, he wanted to invent what he a new sort of reader now one thing it's clear uh mm. from reading the book now is that he definitely invented a new sort of writer you see sort of i think almost any novel that has come after ulysses that doesn't tip its hat to ulysses doesn't really make a great deal of sense i think after after having read this book but i'm interested in this new this idea of a new sort of reader and was wondering if you could sort of articulate a little bit how you think joyce saw that reader being and if you believe that that reader has actually come into uh, come into existence
2: yeah well i think that um by the time Joyce is writing the great book, um, mass literacy has been achieved in general in the English-speaking world. But one effect of that is speed reading. Mm-hmm. People reading in trains are like Bloom sitting on the jacks, uh, reading, you know, and thinking, payment at the rate of the guinea column. <laughs> <As he's> Making <laughs> columns. Making columns. But, but I think what Joyce wanted to do was to challenge that kind of fast reading. He's almost like the slow food movement. He Mm. wants a slow reader. So he puts Mm. in the sentences like a word like bulb alongside a word like blub, B-U-L-B, B-L-U-B, to Mm. trick the eye and slow it up and make you think hard about what you're reading. Mm. Or he does tricks like when one has read... One book of one who once, once, once. He put like 10 versions of a word in a single sentence. Partly it's like someone playing a new instrument, the way African Americans played, you know, violas to produce jazz. Yeah. But I think it's also trying to slow the reader down in the way that Carlos Williams tried to slow the reader down by flooding those poems with white space all on mm-hmm. the page. So I think the modernists were aware of the dangers of uh, mass literacy, producing Mm. a speed reading that was itself inimical to thought.
0: Mm. But surely, um, Professor, it's not only um, this kind of speed reading, but you point out in Ulysses and Us that it's also the curse of passive reading. And so you write that passive or kind of breaking people out of passive reading, you write, was not as modest a program as it might have seemed Most writers believe that by changing language and style, you may in time alter thought and that by altering thought, you may in fact transform the world itself. Can you talk also about the difference between passive reading and active reading?
2: Well, we've always believed here in Ireland that a word is not just a word, it's an action. Mm. And the ancient Mm. poets had the power to change things by their words. It was a kind of magic. so, we do think of all writers as perhaps creating future environments
3: mm. for
2: us to inhabit. And I would think of Joyce in those terms. You know,
3: mm.
2: as Wilde said, the future is what artists already are. Um, that, in some sense, yeah, the new kind of reader is being prepared for a completely new environment in which to do that reading. Um, ah, here's an example. I mean, Bloom's telegraph language, cup of tea soon. Mm. Good, mouth dry. Or when he sees Gertie limping away, tight boots, no, she's lame. Oh. oh. And the line stops and starts four times in accordance with her limp. Mm. But mm. this is also pure Sally Rooney. <laughs> you think of um, Sally Rooney and the texting and the way a novel can be built on mm. texts, the way Richardson's novels were built on. Letter writing, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Uh,
2: and 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 it's as if Joyce has foreseen mm. this kind of way of 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 uh, telegraphies mm. as not just mm. something people would use to get value from a message sent by the postal system, but a way in which they connect inside mm. their own heads with themselves and with each other. Mm. And um, I, I think um, he 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 did liberate much more than we realize, including the likes of Sally Rooney. I agree with the reservation in your question, though. I think that he would have thought that in an era of mass literacy, there would be more two-way kinds of uh, communication, that, for instance, newspapers just assume passive consumption by their readers and that the readers will accept or disagree with what's given. But there, there isn't that sense that they could have been more democratically used for answering back. Um, mm. and, and, and the same about literature, I think, that it continues to be something that is given out to be passively received. Mm. Uh, I think Joyce, you know, I think if he looked at the kind of technologies we have now, even since the days of CD-ROM, would have been very aware of the capacity for the empire to write back so to speak mm. Mm. and yet th- it hasn't happened um, you know the it only happens in a very vulgar way and these bad common threads at the end of newspaper articles but not not with the kind of high intelligence one would hope for mm.
4: you you um, to, to get into into the book a little bit um, you know you you mentioned time and again in 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 Ulysses in the story how um, Bloom is enacting a different kind of democracy than most people think of when they think of uh, you know elections and political parties and mm-hmm. um, and and you you evoke um, uh, you know Walt Whitman and uh, I think it, it it's it's very much in, in in line with this with this tradition in, in America of of you know the John Dewey idea of democracy as a way of life as something that that should transform relationships and not just be about um, you know, elections and, and parties and, and delegating, um, power. And, and you, you point out all kinds of, of virtues that, that Bloom, uh, practices, um, you know, from being, you know, being creative about civic problems, um, to, you know, being two-eyed in a pub full of one-eyed people. Ooh. Um, you know, in view of what you said about Ireland's great progress, uh, recent democratic progress, including its, you know, uh citizens' assemblies and and these these nationwide referenda um you know and thinking about that in in, in putting that together with with ulysses and, and bloom you know what what do you think that readers could take uh about the democracy's uh present and potential future from from reading ulysses
2: um well it's a huge question um i think uh the the, the uh probably the main thing would be that the idea of voting every four years is foolishly equated with democracy and is a glib definition. Mm. Democracy is really about those things you mentioned, about um, intelligent discourse in pubs and people Mm. whose false ideas can be challenged in a public house. Um, One of the things about pubs uh, is that they're like the beach in Brazil you, they can be frequented equally by, you know, a surgeon, a, a dustman, whoever. And and people can talk on a basis of equality in those spaces. They are what is called third spaces by some sociologists.
3: Mm-hmm. And there's an awful
2: lot of them in Ulysses. And partly it's, of course, because uh, the people are oppressed by a colonial and to some degree a clerical system. And they have to seek out these alternative forms of discourse. But yeah, I do think there's all kinds of ways in which uh, that kind of Whitman-esque notion of the everyday man is is celebrated. Even this thing I mentioned about newness, you know, Bloom is obsessed with who was the first person to eat an oyster, or who was the first person to invent barbed wire. Like, (laughs) I mean, in one way, these are crazy questions. But they're not. They're, they're significant. And he actually says that he would like that two-way democratic use of a newspaper. He, he goes around collecting ads for the paper and therefore helping to put pressure on the paper to take a certain line. But he says the job he would really like is to be an agony uncle. Yeah. <laughs> dear, dear Mr. Editor, what is a cure for flatulence? <laughs> you learn a lot teaching others. it's true. Because... This is all, I think in a way, democracy is about a proper pedagogy where Mm -hmm. everyone learns from everyone else.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And, um, you know, we've seen the wrong kind of pedagogy in the school (laughs) between Stephen and Mr. D.C. That Mm -hmm. one way, memorize it or else you're dead learning. Mm -hmm. But Bloom is a believer in to and fro discourse. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, I think. uh, that's Joyce's vision of a democracy. You know, the, the notion of the novel, as Bakteen described it, as being filled with clashing voices. Mm. Mm. One mm.
3: thing that look, I think...
2: S- look Whitman, I think, just to say, he mm. used to go into Sylvia Beach's shop, your shop, and his favourite book there was Leaves of Grass. I really- it was another epic. And it was another mm. epic that was mourning a kind mm. of lost potential of American democracy in yeah. a way that he's mourning... For the bourgeoisie, which is in decline, he, mm.
4: he, he has Buck Mulligan in, the, in one of the first pages say, uh, "Do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict myself."
2: Mm-hmm. No. Yes, it's a good <laughs> quote, and it's interesting. He, he, he also later on quotes the uh, barbaric yawp, the Yankee-sounding mm. barbaric yawp across mm. the, the world. Yet this is from a man who never,
4: never set foot in America, never
2: set foot in America, and seems to have mm. been kind of allergic to the idea. <laughs> and yes, paradoxically, owes a great deal of the explanations given of him to the world to a very clever American people.
3: Mm. That's actually, a lot of the kind of culture we, and mass media. We, I think
2: critical of academics. But I think without those American academia people of the forties, fifties, and sixties, our understandings of Joyce would have been limited in more ways.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Alice, go for it.
0: Well, also, I mean, um, just this idea of containing multitudes. And you talked a lot about mm-hmm. dignity and, and, and returning dignity to the individual person. But this idea that any given person's life and mind contains multitudes in a kind of mm. Whitman esque mm-hmm. strain.
2: Yeah. And that's why Bloom calls himself an anything Aryan.
0: Uh-huh.
2: You know, that he's he, he, everything is inside him, the mm. East as well as the West the mm. Jewish tradition, as well as the Christian, uh, the Greek, the lot. And um, he, he, he is an example of the multiple self. And yet he mm. would never boast that about himself. Yeah. He, mm. he, keeps, he keeps it to himself.
1: Mm. Part, of, part of the, um, I suppose, the act of returning dignity to the, the, the everyday person is returning dignity to the everyday experience. Um, and at a moment you write about Joyce, that he believed that by recording the minutiae of a single day, he could release those elements of the marvellous latent in ordinary living so that the familiar might astonish. Um, And one thing that really interests me in connection to the, I suppose, this idea of democracy and participation and activity in society, which was clearly very important to Bloom and very important to Joyce. Is there a danger in a way that with this kind of recognizing the marvellous latent in ordinary living this could produce a kind of political quietism or a sort of acceptance of Mm. things that they are? Or conversely, is it kind of along the lines of a kind of deeper kind of Gandhi-like radicalism (laughs) where it's only by really getting to the kind of the roots of things that uh, that society can change?
2: Yeah, I would think more in the Gandhi line. Like I said to you, there's something revolutionary about drinking a cup of tea if you're Mm -hmm. an Irish person coming out of the 19th century, you know? Um, And in the same way, I think, um, although it's possible to be dismissive of ordinary life or to think it can be dull and boring, um, it's also possible to see it as utterly Mm -hmm. mysterious. The more you peer at it, the more mysterious it becomes. Remember, I quoted Joyce to you that the extraordinary could safely be left to the journalist. Mm -hmm. The ordinary was the proper domain of the artist. And I think what he meant by that was that um, we'd had too much of emotional extremism, not just in terms of wars uh, and the fact that young men were willing to be conned into going to them in, because they felt their lives had become kind of passive and inactive. Although that mm-hmm. is certainly one of the logics behind world illogics behind World War I. Uh, I, I think Joyce was also seeing in the sensationalism of modern media. Mm-hmm. the same kind of glib failure to immerse in the ordinary uh, and and to recognize its utterly revolutionary potential so um yeah i, I think in a way um uh, he 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 was suspicious of all forms of heroic claim if you like mm-hmm. and 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 he felt that um the the the, the 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 I mean even in terms of the Irish nationalists, the element in nineteen sixteen he didn't like was the claim of heroic violence, redemptive sacrifice mm. that he was suspicious of these kind of gestures wherever he saw them bloom Bloom leaves the Ormond hotel during the crappie boy not only that but he 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 he, he releases a withheld fart you um, <laughs> remember he's so polite he doesn't fart while he's sitting next to anyone but they're in a group in the ormond hotel and they're all kind of playing the equivalent of musical instruments like bloom at one point pulls on an elastic band which is really symbolic of his marriage because marriage, the, right. the band snaps. but it's also like a musical string mm. and in the same way the fart is almost tuba like <laughs> and, and and the men are singing these yeah old uh sentimental Irish songs. Heroic, right. So so it it, it is yeah. Joyce is wonderful at deflating all attempts at the heroic. You know that famous story, I think it's about Scott Fitzgerald going up and saying, Could he kiss the hand that wrote Ulysses? And Joyce said no, <laughs> that hand has done a lot of other things as well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I it. He, he, he just, just, just on this point, he, he, he um, would
2: be amazed at all the statues to him in Dublin now, because he was always taking the piss out of statues in his own. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 you know, they the the one in Talbot Street is now known uh, corrosively by passing Dubliners as the prick with the stick. <laughs> we had we had Anna Olivia who was the tart with the cart. Um, tart with the cart. We had Oscar Wilde who was the fag on the crag. The the brick with the stick, and I think that deflating humour is something he would utterly identify with. (laughs) He would have loved it, Mm -hmm. Alice. What are you going to say?
0: Just just on this point, um, Professor Cuybert of of kind of immersing oneself in the ordinary. Of course, he writes Ulysses as World War One is raging on in the background. What do you make of this? Really, you know, you're saying to drink a cup of tea is a radical act. For me, you know, this is picking up on Tom Stoppard's joke. What did you do in the Great War, Mister Joyce? I wrote Ulysses. What did you do? What do you make of this juxtaposition of World War One in the background and Joyce not necessarily engaging in the war, you know, civically, but then also setting um, Ulysses in nineteen oh four as a pre-war novel?
2: Yeah, I think he is showing again latency that many of the more horrific elements that manifest during the war, which has been carried on while he writes, are latent in certain moments. For example, when the boys in the school in episode two play the hockey, um, and, and Stephen says, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. The question is then put, what if that nightmare gave you a back kick? I think Joyce is showing not only how physical contact sports helped to sell yeah. to credulous boys the idea of war because That's some of these war boys 10 years later would be killed mm. in the war for which the hockey game was a rehearsal. Right. But, but equally, if you think of Joyce's use of the classics, mm. use yeah. of the classics in especially British mm. schools, but to some degree the Irish ones that imitated them, glorify was, was also about, you know, uh, you know, Having wasted the town, Caesar showed mm. mercy to the inhabitants. There's a mm. tremendous SPQR mentality projected mm. through the teaching of classics in Joyce's mm. time. And he is trying to provide a corrected version of mm. the classics in Ulysses. So, uh, yeah, I think it does very much connect with World War I and in the ways mm. that Tom Stoppard understood.
4: Can, can we ask a question about about Molly and and Poldy? Um something that we uh in our last episode we 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 um finished the book. Um and <laughs> we and all it,
0: finished the book.
4: We, we all finished <laughs> it. Um and we 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 wondered a little bit what you might think um of the of the, the line, he never did a thing like that before. And we kind of were t- we're debating uh kind of throwing back and forth between us, what what did it mean that Bloom asks for breakfast in bed, why does he do that at the end of what happened on June 16th, 1904? What could that mean for the future of of, the mar- of his marriage with, with Molly? And, and since you're our kind of unofficial fourth podcaster, Professor Kyber, <laughs> what, what do you think this request of breakfast in bed means?
2: Well, I remember when I was a student, my bearded elderly male professors were all convinced it was proof positive that at long last, home rule had been achieved. <laughs> the world was set to rights. Man was ordering breakfast, and not the other way round. Um, my father <laughs> used to joke that when Leopold made Molly her breakfast in bed, that in the Dublin of 1904, this was an act tantamount to perversion. But, but of course, it's not. I mean, it, there's all kinds of reasons why he's di- they divide the house between themselves. It's a kind of Irish version of mutual toleration, which may be trembling on the brink of divorce. Um, and, and the fact that he would suddenly ask for the uh, food maybe suggests a new phase in their relationship. It does seem to me that in the Circe chapter, when he finally admits what's happening in his own home between Blazes Boylan and Molly, thereafter he becomes extremely active. This right, mother, yes. He not only uh, tackles the whore mistress and saves Stephen Mm. from her wiles and protects Stephen's money, in the act of which there's a voiceover from Stephen's dead mother approving all this, but thereafter he brings Stephen home and, as we know, he suggests to Molly that she look after the food. Mm -hmm. So it's as if he has recovered his mojo or Mm. his boy uh, become Mm. active. And um, I I, I, I don't want to slide into a kind of sexist reading that takes away the beautiful androgynous bloom from us Mm who do these things like feeling in no way demeaned by bringing Molly to breakfast in bed. I I think that was a, a fascinating topic. I often used to talk to Irish students about this. And they would say to me that they would never take summer jobs as waiters or waitresses in Ireland. But lots of them went to New York, where they. Yeah, Massachusetts. Yeah. But they wouldn't like to be seen doing this in their native heat. Bloom Mm. seems not to have this problem. He seems to be quite happy to be a kind of serving man to his wife or to anyone. And uh, he hasn't got this kind of, if you like, post colonial insecurity cringe mm. that the, the irish have about you know waiting so mm. it is a surprise to her that he asks for it but i think it's part of his interest too i mean she she is so fascinated by all the secret things in his person it, including the fact that he understands what a woman wants mm. not just how to handle a woman but what she is mm. and, and and uh maybe maybe she's aware that this thing with Boylan has in fact kickstarted the marriage.
1: Yeah. One of the things that also came up in our conversation about Penelope was her mm. reaction to that actually as well. And sort of the the possibility when she talks about like him clanking up the the stairs with the tray or clattering up the stairs with the tray or something like that. And suddenly getting this sense that actually her resistance to making breakfast isn't so much a sort of resisting the the male roles as a kind of affectionate thing about this is Mm. you know this Mm. is the dynamic of their relationship and she has a lot of affection and sort of emotion attached to Leopold and his kind of Mm. um uh, sort of doting uh doting behavior
4: and that that relates back to her own need to be mothered because she didn't have a mother Mm. and so that this changing the dynamic could be you know both Bloom and Molly having a new perspective on their own needs, right, Mm -hmm. on on their own patterns, and maybe looking for a new form of reciprocation. You know that 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 they're not abandoning the 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 Bloom serving Molly and Beth, but they're just changing it. They're just switching it around, and that that switching it around could be could be healthy.
2: Absolutely, no, I think so, and I think that Bloom repeatedly voices the desire to be a mother, even though he thinks Mm -mm. the act of giving birth would be very painful he would still like it, and it kind of happens in Circe. Um, Molly doesn't seem to be quite so into the model of mothering, but that's, as you say, because she never had a proper model as a mother. And 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 it's interesting, for instance, when their daughter mm. Millie writes, she writes uh, a note to the mother, but a letter to Bloom. Mm. Millie, whose mm. name is almost the same as Molly,
3: mm.
2: and there's a kind of competitive thing, I think, that Molly feels towards her daughter, symbolised mm. even in almost the near identity of the names. Mm. But mm. yes, I think Bloom wants, in a way, mm. to teach her the skills of mothering. And that mm. might be one of the reasons why he makes mm. what to her is a strange request. What an insult.
0: Right. So so thinking more about this idea of, um, and, and kind of as we as we turn to the end here, unfortunately, <laughs> Um, this idea about teaching and being taught and thinking about uh, putting Ulysses back in the hands of the ordinary reader. You write about Ulysses as wisdom literature. um, Hmm. And yet Joyce seems at some points in the novel to warn us, against kind of seeking practical life lessons in literature. So we can think of Stephen in the National Library or Bloom in his living room, um, as he thumbs through Shakespeare. Do you think, um, Professor Kyber, that we should see Ulysses as a wisdom text? Do you think Joyce would have wanted us to? And finally, when have you turned to Ulysses for wisdom and has it served you?
2: Well, I do see it as a wisdom text every great wisdom text warns against being over-fetishized. It Mm. always carries the health warning you mentioned. Um, All great works of art, even, contain the essential criticism of the codes to which they finally adhere. But To me, it is a a brilliantly sacred text, in the way that Whitman intended the leaves of grass to be. You know, Mm. priest departs, the divine literatus comes. It begins with the old Latin Mass, intro ebo at Altare day. I will go to the altar of God. Um, and then Bloom, of course, kind of lets the air out of that by saying, good idea, the Latin stupefies them first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when it's he's good. looking at the old ladies receiving the communion a few times yeah, yeah. later. But Joyce has used the trick at the very beginning of the book. But if you think about it, this is very much a book about Eucharist. Mm. Um, you know, even bringing breakfast is breaking bread with your lover. He feeds bread to the birds in the River Liffey. Mm. He brings the book to a climax by offering Stephen coffee and a bun. And Stephen thereby inadvertently achieves the Eucharist he couldn't do for his dead mother, mm. who had wanted him to do but he couldn't. Um, I remember... Someone saying the same about Proust when the Madeleine is dipped in is dipped in the tea. This mm-hmm. is just like uh, another form of the Eucharist. So I, I think of it very much as as you know a, a, a sacred book uh, and and one which does teach you how to live. And what uh, certainly what I learned from it was some of the things you've mentioned that objects may have a life, you mm-hmm. know, animals but also chairs. And, you know, presses. Yes. Um, that, that, that violence is pretentious rather than ever successful.
3: Mm. just
2: an overstatement mm. of things that can be put in other ways. Um, I learned how to tell a joke and how not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Beckett's old line, there's only two kinds of jokes, those that were once funny and those that were never funny. What but Joyce, <laughs> Joyce is really interested in, in, in jokes and how they should be told and not told. But, but, but most of all, I think, um, he wants to recover the elements that went into the makings of religion, but have been stripped down to mere routine rather than mm-hmm. active ritual. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I mean, this is the man who, when he lived in Trieste, went to every one of the ceremonies in Holy Week knew the whole liturgy by heart, and whispered the words with the priest. But he was standing with one foot in the church and the other foot in the porch, half mm-hmm. in and half out. Mm-hmm. Because he had so much reservations about the mm-hmm. clergy. He was anti-clerical, but I don't think he was ever anti-religious. And mm-hmm. I think trying to produce, you know, like Whitman was, uh, uh, a new kind of Authentic. modernity.
1: Yeah. yeah. As um, as Alice said, we are getting towards the end of our time with you, so let's get a little bit demob happy, get a little bit iconoclastic. Um, you say at a moment that Joyce would have laughed at the, quote, silly notion of its Ulysses' monumental perfection. Um, with your kind of editor's hat on, or perhaps your teacher's hat on, <laughs> which sections would you have cut? Which would yeah. you have asked him to rewrite? <laughs> and, uh, you know, which of the parts of the book that work uh, best for you and which would uh, could perhaps have been jettisoned. Benefited from an en- editor's pen. This
0: is a very iconoclastic, Adam. I did not know you would <laughs> ask this.
1: Let's break
4: some icons, Professor no, no. Cybert.
0: I, I think he uh he became
2: a victim of the hero worship that surrounded him in Paris. So as the book goes on, it you know perhaps is a little self indulgent. I think particularly that um Ithaca catechism question and answer chapter is much too long
1: no i disagree entirely <laughs> <laughs> i'd have taken another 200 pages of it yeah we
4: but we, we had to do all of cersei we did cersei as a radio play cersei felt like i was here for a week
2: <laughs> but did you ever have to sit in catechism class year never year? No. yeah no exactly. no <laughs> i did
4: although alice dated a jesuit
2: <laughs> I don't I don't like questions that are asked and the answers are always already known. Already
4: known, that's true. I, that's a bit of a bummer.
2: Part of the greatness of this book is it's an answer to a question that no one had ever quite asked. Just as the Easter Rising was a kind of answer to a question that hadn't been fully put. So mm. I would definitely shorten Ithaca. Um I think Oxen of the Sun, even yeah, though freak. it's a brilliant parody. Based, in fact, on just one man's collection of the greatest hits of English wit. The strange thing about it, though, is the one person he doesn't parody is Newman, Cardinal, now Saint Henry Newman. Uh, and, and, and the passage of Newman is one that says that there are hidden things in the person, whether of guilt or glory, that will suddenly erupt into consciousness. This is the formula of the Circe chapter. That mm. so irritated you by itself. so interesting. That's and what so interesting. Joyce himself said was the most realistic chapter in the book, mm. showing elements that weren't present in the self deceiving qualities of the interior monologue, sometimes. Right, it's right, right. Other stuff. So, and, and of course, a lot of people think it's the filthiest what? chapter in the book because Joyce was upping the ante after his troubles with the American mm. Post and Gertie McDowell. Mm. Um, but it's funny, therefore, and a bit subversive to think that St. John Henry Newman, you know, that wonderful convert and master of English prose, would in this short passage have produced the genesis of that obscene Cersei chapter. I, I just love this, you know. <laughs> I think this is where Joyce is mm-hmm. always at his best. He he knows that there's a kind of uh, what Jung said once is true. All religious problems can be ultimately summarized as sexual and vice versa. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And the Catholic Church was founded on a pun. He's always open (laughs) to the comical element that is a part of the religious mystery. But Mm. uh, he is insistent on the fact that there is a religious mystery.
4: And you and you, I have to say this because you 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 say it so many times in your book um, that Bloom is godlike or Christlike.
3: Yes, yes. And
4: and 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 to me, as someone who was raised, um, you know, Episcopalian, which is sort of Christian light um, in, in American terms, <laughs> that, that that the, the idea of, of being um, religious and being democratic uh, always seemed to be in, in a in a in Super Bowl tension in America, and yet. Bloom, bloom in your book, comes, out, uh, comes across as both an ideal democratic citizen and also a kind of a godlike, semi-divine. How can he be both? How can he be both an ideal member of a democratic community and also this exceptional divine
2: figure at the same time? Because the god in whom I believe is the ultimate democrat, the ultimate exponent of all forms of life as mm. being on the same level, you know. That that there's a chain of being, if you like, which even Shakespeare believed in, mm-hmm. um, that goes from objects like the machine in the newspaper office or the chair through the seagulls that may speak, the cat with whom Bloom has a conversation. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, you can say he talks to the cat because he's lonely, or you can say, no, this is a man with such a deep spiritual awareness that he raises Mm. consciousness in everything around him Mm. yes objects animals and gods because Mm. of course there is a sense in which he thinks a lot about the buddha he thinks a lot about you know Mm. torah the fact that jesus was a jew and that's why they Mm. crucified him what nietzsche said there was only one christian and they crucified him (laughs) (laughs) he's really interested in the whole chain of being and how much he has in common and yeah. that's what I think, that's where being godlike comes in. And of mm. course, you don't claim your god if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill the Buddha. Kill, a, kill the Buddha, right. See, what I said to you earlier, that great mm. art and wisdom contains the essential criticism of the codes to which it seems to adhere. Mm. Joyce is aware of that mm. too, so he's not going to ever have Bloom claim to be godlike, just as... Jesus always said, "Thou sayest this." He never made the claim for himself.
4: And, and 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 so what what you're saying is that this this recognition of the great chain of life is in fact the the greatest democratic realization of all.
2: Yeah. In a sense, I do. I think that at the heart of a truly religious understanding of the world, go back to what yeah. I said about Jesus, is that ordinary people are extraordinary, mm. and 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 that. Mm. For a particular mission, he chose fishermen, prostitutes, people who were not particularly well you know, positioned in the status groups of that society. And it's taken us a long time, as I said, to catch up. Catch up. Well, so
0: so as, as, as we continue to wind down here, thinking about this great chain of being Professor Kyberd, um, we were curious. So much has been written about all of the different particularities and minutiae in the novel. Um, Which, as you say, celebrates the wisdom of everyday and ordinary people. Who or what, for you, is your favourite and perhaps most overlooked or overseen minor character? Is it the cat, the typewriter, (laughs) the elastic band, the bat, the Noisy Flynn? (laughs)
2: No, it's 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 the little boy who looks at Bloom when he comes out of um, the Ormond Hotel and says, "Hey, Mister, your fly's open, Mister." And I, I, I love it because he's trying to, most of the boys laugh at Bloom and mock his way of walking, but this yeah. boy is trying to save him from a potential social embarrassment. Yeah. Mm. But it's also beautiful musically because the word mister occurs twice in the sense mm-hmm. to mister, <laughs> your eyes open mister. And that seems to me kind of respectful of his bourgeois dignity, but it's oh. also mm. the way Irish boys even now in Dublin still speak. And I am that boy, so I like
0: <laughs> <laughs> You had the answer perfectly ready to go. Amazing. Our,
2: our, our
4: final question, Professor Kyber, and thank you. I mean, it's just been such an incredible, this is one of the most warm and deeply humane books I, I've ever read. Yeah, and so I, I'm so grateful uh, for this chance to, to, to get to meet and exchange um, our thoughts. The last question is, we're preparing for Bloomsday next week. Uh, We're, I got to say, a little bit behind in our preparations. um, And and this is mostly on me. What to you makes a magnificent Bloomsday?
2: To read the book aloud, especially Mm. your favorite passages. And of course, recognize what I said, that it is a kind of quasi-religious activity. It Mm. has its special pilgrimages to special places, if you're here in Dublin special foods you can partake of, like the gorgonzola, mm. which doesn't involve the slaughter of animals. Um, mm. It has um, a kind of, uh, it has its own rabbis who decode the sacred text, people like me. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty as charged, rabbi. <laughs> I, think, I think it is what we Irish have discovered in place of the fading Catholic food. Uh, which was a a kind of clerical autocracy rather than Mm. truly Catholic faith. But yeah, I I, I think read your favorite passage aloud and reread it even. When I first read that book, I didn't understand the half of it. And it was around the time I listened to Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, Mm. and I didn't understand the half of it either. (laughs) I knew that something strange and new was coming in on a foreign Mm. frequency. And uh, I remember my father also eavesdropping on My Blonde on Blonde and wondering, what the hell is he listening to that sort of (laughs) stuff.
1: Although that LP ended up in his cupboard, right? It is (laughs) is
2: But What what I was going to tell you was that um, I read in Bob Dylan's Chronicles a wonderful sentence in which he said he was given by the head of CBS Records a present of a first edition, Mm. a, a Shakespeare and Company edition of Ulysses, and Bob says the following, I could tell that this man was a lord of language, but what the hell he was trying to say, I could not figure out. <laughs> Stop projecting, Bob. Stop projecting.
4: <laughs> hey, well, and Bond on Blonde includes the, the, the song Temporary Like Achilles. So the Homeric Resonance is uh, oh, yes. one of the great records. You're good.
1: That's great. Well, look, that hey, let's scary. have our next discussion oh. on Bond on Blonde. <laughs> um, I, I, I know Great this note. probably comes across that we could keep uh, you here for hours and hours and oh, hours, nice, and we really nice. should uh... come back to Shakespeare and Company, yes. Professor Carter. Come back yes, to Shakespeare no, and please. Company. Thank
2: you, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the chat very much, oh. and your questions are a lot more probing than I was making them sound. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go away and think hard about some of what you've thrown at me.
1: It's it's been such an enormous pleasure. Of course, uh, for our listeners, Ulysses and Us is available, obviously from Shakespeare and Company. We have stacks and stacks of it downstairs. It's available Mm. from our website. It's available from your independent bookstore of choice, uh, wherever you, you may be living. Um I and hope it that
0: is, it's worth also pointing out that the introduction to the penguin edition also written by Professor Kyred, is brilliant and cracks open the book in in new and exciting ways.
1: Yes indeed. And this episode will be going out uh, just in a few days after recording. So if you are listening to this and you are planning a last minute visit to Paris for our Bloomsday celebrations, you can Through join PM. us at, well join us at the Irish Cultural Centre from midday Join us at 3 p.m. at Shakespeare and Company, and then join us for the final ever BloomCast recording (laughs) at the American Library, live, uh, both in person and online, uh, at 7.30 730 p.m. But all that remains for us to say, uh, and I think we've got to go round and say it, Professor Kuybert, thank you so, so much. What a
2: a, a pleasure. What a
4: delight. Thank
1: you so
0: very much. Thank you for having
1: me.
2: And um, I hope the sun shines for you all on a great day I'm sure it will and um, I I hope that people who read those books of mine you recommended do what I intended and go back to the main book because Mm. it's just a portal of access no more than that but you know I I love the book because it's about a world I know Mm. well yes they will yes
1: yes indeed I have no (laughs) doubt thank you so much thank you